This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Brand loyalty used to be something companies could rely on. It was in part driven by commercials on network TV and catchy jingles, but millennials and Gen Z aren't looking at the same media and ads that their parents did. Companies that were popular in past generations are having to figure out how to appeal to younger consumers, whereas this may be an opportunity for new brands to build a loyal customer base. With more on this interesting shift in buying right now, we're joined by Americus Reed, marketing professor here at the Wharton School. He joins me in studio. And also on the phone, Eric Gordon, who's a professor at the University of Michigan in the Ross School of Business. Americus, great seeing you as always. It's great to be here, Dan. Eric, great to have you back with us today. Hey, it's nice to be with you, Dan. I, and I, Americus. Hey, Eric. I find this interesting that, that, and we know, and we've talked so many times, Americus, yes. how retail is really, it's, it's so much of an on-the-fly kind of business right now. And... In the span of what, maybe a year or two, what appeals to one group of consumers is not appealing to another group of consumers. I think that's 100% correct, Dan. And I think that the struggle for retailers and brands and products, services, organizations, etc., is to really try to catch that wave when they can identify it quickly. Uh, but also to be able to identify those trends that are going to stick around a little bit to be able to build a, a strong business model on in terms of the long term. So it's a difficult challenge, but I think in this day and age, I think retailers either have to do that or risk not being in business. So, Eric? Yeah, you know, sometimes I wonder if the brand loyalty idea ever really existed to the extent we thought it was. Uh, was it brand loyalty or was it just sort of laziness? Uh, we stuck with a brand out of habit and the brand wasn't adding that much value. Um, uh, now, I guess, you know, as, as America says, uh, you know, change of technology, uh, image of a company, image of its brands can uh, change very quickly and, and how we relate to the brand can change very quickly. You know, sort of one comment from a CEO, you CEO of a pizza company, you make a comment, how we relate to your brand instantly changes. Well, yeah, I think that's 100% correct. Eric's touching on something that I talk about a lot in my classes, which is the idea of not being fooled into thinking that repeat purchase is the same as loyalty. And oftentimes, as Eric is pointing out, you know, there's something that's just, listen, it's a habit. I don't really think about it that much, so I do it over and over and over again. And sometimes right. companies think that, okay, well, you're loyal to me. And that's a very different proposition <laughs> from describing a situation where a, a, a loyal consumer feels like their, their values somehow, generationally speaking or not, somehow align with the brand and then connect yeah. them in a deeper way. So it, it's a version of going to the local pizza joint because it's really cl the closest yes. place to you instead of the fact that their pizza is so phenomenal and I would go 5,000 miles to be able to get that particular pizza. Exactly. That's 100% correct. What do you what do you think then is – I mean, obviously, Gen Z and millennials are – are different at points, but I think there there obviously there are some areas where they are the same as well, and, and so I wonder why that potentially you would even have that much of a difference between those two groups uh, in, in this day and age. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I always caution folks to be very careful about using age as a way to kind of describe a big group of consumers. So this word millennials gets thrown around okay. a lot, and marketers seem super hot on this word. Let's get the millennials. And thinking about the perspective of, okay, well, if we're going to consider a group of someone who's 20 to 35 as a group, as a segment, 
Uh, we have to be a little bit careful because I think it's not that crazy to think to yourself that a 20-year-old is re not really the same as a 35-year-old. And so I think the, the real analysis comes into diving into what are the what are the cultural, what are the political, what are the values-based driven kind of ideologies that exist within these generational uh, groups that we can then potentially tap into and try to make some statement with respect to our brand. But in some cases, Eric, when you're talking about the, those values uh, and when you're talking about the difference between a 35 or 40-year-old and a 15 or 20-year-old, especially if they are parent and child, you expect that those values would be the same and so that that would follow along in that process, correct? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's more likelihood that somebody who grew up with certain things that they grew up with and is 25 years old, they have some things in common that, that I, I'm not 25, uh, uh, you know, don't have in common. But, I, you know, I would almost bounce this back to America's because this is really his sweet spot. But I, I used to teach a marketing research course, and it used to drive me crazy because they would talk about breaking people up into these groups, age 18 to 24, um, this income, all of this demographic stuff, uh, and... Uh, you know, that's easy. We used it because that's the data we had at, uh, on hand. But it's also very superficial because uh, within each group, there are really big differences. And even what's similar within the group, is, is it really that they're 23 or is it that their life, their values, their, their sort of social sense of self, is 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 the same and if you're an advertiser if you're a retailer what you want to tap into is not that they're 23 because they're not going to be 23 five years from now <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's their it's enduring values or, or at least more enduring values but i really should bounce this back to america's because uh you know for for our listeners um america's is famous for being sort of the leading researcher in this <laughs> Well, you're famous. You're famous. I'm sitting here wow. in the studio with a famous person wow. here. I, I think Eric meant infamous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Uh, Eric and I actually, listeners, go way back. Uh, he was one of my mentors when I was doing my PhD at University of Florida in 96 to 2000. But uh, it's true what Eric is saying because – I think that, you know, we impose, as market researchers, we want to impose a category on people and right. then try to use it. And it should be the other way around. We should look underneath that and try to figure out what's the psychology. One other quick point, Dan, related to what this topic sort of engenders is the idea that when you look at a parent and a child, you're right in 100% that they should share certain values. Sure, yeah. But there's also kind of an interesting, and you could probably speak to this as a parent, there's this interesting kind of, at some point, the child wants to be different. Oh, at yeah. some uh, point, you know, they want to go and get, they want to rebel, right? I, I, am I, I right? Know, I'm right in the middle of this right <laughs> you're, now. You're, you're, you're Boy, living am I this, in the middle sir. of this. Yes. My, my, my 12 year old daughter is getting to the point where not everything that dad likes is really cool. Yes. And, and that, you know, that's, that's a traditional thing. I mean, I went through it when I was a teenager with, with, my parents. I mean, I think that's just a historical trend, but it, it is interesting that you, you have this time period, whether it be 12, 15, 18, whatever mm -hmm. it might be, mm -hmm. where there is that, that kind of separation Correct. from everything that a parent knows and expects is great to, well, you know, I'm going to try something different. It's going to totally be something different. And it's interesting because at, at that particular point, Dan, if a brand is trying to come back and say, well, here's an old brand that's legacy brand from your parents' generation, we're going yeah. to reintroduce it to you, yeah. there's some risk there. Well, but Eric also, and I want to bring this up because I think that we see at times, we almost see a skip of a generation where somebody that may be a Gen Z or a millennial may not necessarily think everything that their parent 
has or likes is great. But sometimes they see something that maybe their grandparent has or likes, and they think, oh, you know, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to incorporate that in my life. Yeah, it's like every other generation retro, you know. <laughs> right, it yes. be caught dead wearing what I wore. Uh, but, you know, grandpa stuff, yeah, not bad. Of course, I came from the generation where we wore really ugly, uh, really ugly stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, you know when, you know, uh, America said something I think is really interesting. You know, come back and refer to brands. Um, think about what, uh, like, Oldsmobile, defunct. Oldsmobile um, yeah. looked at this and they ran uh, kind of an infamous flight of ads to position themselves, and and the positioning was. Not your dad's, not your parents' Oldsmobile. Yeah. Um, deliberately trying to get you know folks to to see Oldsmobile differently. Mm -hmm. um, didn't work at all for a variety of reasons. One, I thought it was ill thought out. Two, uh, you may remember um, they ran the ad and it was not your father's Oldsmobile and who was driving the Oldsmobile. Ringo Starr, yeah. You know, yeah. your dad's your dad's hero. Um, but this this idea of you know you know revitalizing a brand, you know, sometimes it works. Um, Cadillac, mm. Cadillac got revitalized. Marble got revitalized. Snickers revitalized. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it sure is not easy to do. Is there though a difference in being able to revitalize a product depending on what the product actually is? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I, I look at products um, um, uh, at a couple of levels uh, and brands at a couple of levels. So, you know, you can think of a brand as sort of a promise um, that uh, the brand owner makes to you. Um, and, and they promise to deliver you some kind of benefits. And then when you look at the benefits, think of the benefits at different levels. There's functional benefits. And let's use, use an example that maybe, uh, you know, is sort of in the news as a brand that needs to be revitalized. Think about Campbell's Soup. So the brand can stand for, um, it, when I was a kid, it's convenient. It was inexpensive. And, you know, I came from a frugal family, a frugal generation. It was nourishing. Um, and it's something a good parent did. Campbell, mm -mm, Campbell's soup is good food. Think about it now. It's still convenient. It's still frugal. Um, but functionally, is it nourishing or is it just a can of high fructose cone syrup? <laughs> but then think about it at the deeper level. It used to be that serving Campbell's soup to your kid made you a good parent. That's yeah. some kind of psychic or social thing, not yeah. a functional thing. Mm -hmm. Now it's sort of the opposite. So when you think about brands and, and how they can come back, I, I think it's useful to think about brands at different levels. But what, what about what about the, 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 the switch of a brand, yes. kind of an intentional, whether it be month, two month, three month, and I'm thinking of the IHOP, mm -hmm. IHOB yeah. brand change, quote unquote, that, unquote, that yeah. happened, you know, er, earlier this year, where they wanted to kind of push their 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 run of new hamburgers that right. they wanted to sell, and so they said, "Well, you know, we're changing from IHOP." You know, everybody has, I think everybody that's on this planet may know IHOP as a pancake place, and then they make the shift to try and even for a temporary bit of time mm -hmm. make themselves a burger joint. 
Yeah, I think that's a great example of how do we become relevant to a different audience. And Eric makes a great point because branding is double-edged. The better yeah. that you are able to create a very strong, clear image to people means that you have the likelihood of really connecting with them. However, when you try to change that, changing is very hard because now sure. you're asking them to believe something different that they have not believed necessarily for a very long time. So that's a hard proposition, but all great companies have to do that. I want to go back to the Campbell's example because they're right across the river here, uh, headquarters-wise, and I've actually had Campbell's folk come into my class and discuss the, the frustrating challenges that they have because they have this, as Eric's saying, this iconic brand. Yeah. You think the, the suit, you know, Andy Warhol, you think about all that imagery. Sure, yeah. And for yeah. us, it's like, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. But for the younger generation, like, what, what's that about? <laughs> you know, and so, and, and to the point of, you know, how much of that do I try to retain as I now start trying to talk to this newer audience who cares less about the, the kind of iconic nature of the can and all that and doesn't have those same memories. I remember seeing a focus group where an older consumer of Campbell's talked about how he remembered his grandmother opening up the the sound of the can, opening up the yeah. can, pouring the thing into the into the pot. You know, the smell. The, he would come in from in the winter cold, and yeah. grandma would hand him the soup, and it was this whole thing. And his sure. Campbell's, I love Campbell's. Yeah. And then a younger consumer's like, I don't have any of that in my brain. Yeah. What now? And so if you're going to tell me soup, I don't. I may not even believe that soup should be in a can. You have a big problem. <laughs> well, and, and and then you throw in the fact that you know most of the time now soup is being warmed in a microwave so you don't have the cooking on the exactly so but that's the expectation of the consumer and yep. therein lies where you think of ihop ihop is yes. expected it's yes. known as a pancake place i you know i went to a soccer tournament with my, with my kids over the weekend i took them to the waffle house the <laughs> waffle house there's an expectation of what the waffle house yes. is yes. right off the bat and you know that going in yes. so I, I, that's probably where that frustration you get with people like at Campbell Soup is people have expectations and it, at times yes. it's very hard to break those expectations. It's extremely difficult to break those expectations. I'm with you, Dan. I, I hop was like iconic in my mind. I hold the record for greatest number of pigs and blanket uh, eaten in one setting. There you go. Uh, I had four servings one, one time when I was like 11 years old. It was a great moment in my life. Uh, and so, you know, now I'm trying to tell well, no, that's about burgers. Is like almost yeah. reprehensible to me. You know what I mean? So sure. you know, you just gotta you gotta pick and choose your moments. You have to. I think your point's a really good point. You have to change slowly, and you have to kind of make little incremental changes that aren't going to like shock people too much, yeah. but are going to take you in a different direction. Eric, yeah, you know, um, uh, yeah, for me, it's 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 Waffle House. Actually, I think Americans and I are both you know spent time in Atlanta, so we know Waffle House really well. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> I went to one on North Avenue near oh, Georgia yes. Tech. Yes, yes. Um, the, um, uh, you know, here's another way to think about a brand. I mean, brands are so interesting because you can think about them about 30 different ways. Think of a brand as sort of a space that people give you in their heads, in their lives. You know, this is the role you play in my life. Think about watches. Like for me, uh, a watch is something that tells me time. Space, that's the space it has in my life. For other people, the space is, uh, I'm I'm wealthy. Mm. The space is I've succeeded and I own this watch. Um, you, you have to. It, it, the, the brand is to some another way of looking at brands, at least, is it's it's a space that uh, somebody allows you to occupy in their mind. And if you think about they allow you to occupy it in their mind. Are they going to allow you to occupy the burger space if you're an IHOP? So you, you have to do something that 
people will let you do. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe doing it gradually helps, but, you know, there, there has to be some credibility. Uh, you know, the famous branding story is why the, the Japanese luxury cars are, are not called Toyotas and Hondas. Uh, Toyota and Honda didn't believe that people would let uh, Toyota occupy the luxury car space in their mind, so they created another brand. Right. Um, uh, you know, so when you talk about you know change, how do you revitalize it? There's sort of a feasibility set that I think makes sense for some companies. The Campbell Soup one it troubles me because I, I think it was feasible for them to stand for something else. In fact, they have a brand of soup called Yes that is actually hmm. pretty good. Hasn't been a big seller, but, you know, burgers at IHOP, you know, I'm with America. So I, I, in my mind, I, I'm just not going to let them occupy that space. So then how do you think then that these quote-unquote legacy brands are going to be impacted by this shift in mindset and, and in purchasing, especially when you throw in the, the, the digital component mm -hmm. Because everybody wants to message everybody about anything on social, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, whatever it might be. So these brands not only have to have this incredible link on social, but they also have to still be able to to be able to be out there and connecting with the consumer, you know, literally hand to hand. I think that's one hundred percent correct. I think this uh, what social media does, Dan, uh, is potentially. Uh, a nice mitigating factor for what Eric is pointing out here. It's like maybe this is a channel, maybe this is the conduit that allows us to get credibility with this younger audience. If we can be on these platforms and be relevant and be authentic yeah. and interesting and not you know gimmicky, maybe that's a way that we can kind of make them feel that we can occupy that space in their minds because we're in a sense speaking their their language in, in terms of them being uh, you know digital natives. But as part of uh, of the shift in advertising, Eric, in general right now. I mean, so many companies are making that shift away from what we knew as traditional media, TV, and radio, and they have to be involved in this area already. So I would think it would be just kind of a natural path as well, correct? Yeah, I'm with Americans, though. It's a natural path, and it's a two-edged sword, because if you do it and you're phony, it's discovered in about 30 seconds, and it's disseminated to every corner of the earth, the smallest village and the smallest island in the Pacific, about 30 <laughs> seconds after that. So if you think you're going to be in control, you're going to control the message, uh, even if it's kind of a semi-phony message, social media is going to kill you. But if you actually are doing what you claim you're doing, if and you can get a few influencers on social media to believe that and 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 propagate it, then it's much more powerful than any ad you can run because you know people are wisely skeptical of ads. You know, say what you will about the younger people. Every generation since, uh, you know, you read the Greeks, they complain about the younger generation. <laughs> it's, it's what you get to do when you get to be older. It's what you get to suffer when you're younger. But I'll say this. Um, when I was younger, I fell for a lot more baloney than the young people fall for now. So social media, um, don't expect it to do anything but expose you if you're a phony, but it can really help you if you're making a genuine change. Yeah, I think that's 100% correct, and I think there are lots of really good cases out there. Uh, I'll mention that the only company brand that I follow on Twitter is Wendy's. 
And one of the reasons why I follow Wendy's is because they have an, an amazing Twitter account. They're very huh. uh, humorous. They, they. I don't know if you you saw sort of the the back and forths between Wendy's and IHOP when IHOP announced IHOB, huh. but it was some I amazingly imagine, yeah. entertaining stuff. And so, you know, if you're able to kind of connect in a way that is part of a conversation, and yeah, you're a brand, but you're not really selling anything, you're trying to connect and you're trying to create a relationship, I think you can make that potential thing that uh, Eric is talking but about. But there's is something interesting, and I just brought up their Twitter account, and, and one of the interesting things is seemingly they may be like different from other companies are willing to have conversations with other Twitter people yes. throughout the course of the day. Not a ton of companies are willing to do that. They want to use Twitter as an information source, yes. get that tool out, but not have the conversation. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's I think that's kind of a mistake, Dan, because I think the opportunity is not to just say, "Hey, let's do what we were doing in advertising on a one-way kind of, you know, direction of of, of information dissemination. Let's try to actually create a, a kind of digital word of mouth conversation relationship building kind of context and let's do it in a quite humorous way." Eric Yeah, I mean, plastering you with ads, shooting ads at you really tough to build a relationship. Now, you can do it. I mean, Coca-Cola over its history has had some real heart-tugging. McDonald's had some heart-tugging ads that I think that I think did create some relationships, but it's really hard to do. It completely misses the point of social media. It completely misses the benefit of it, which is to, you know, loosen up, open it up. Don't be so thick, you know, don't be so thin-skinned. Take some criticism, respond honestly, and organically you end up with with really deep relationships, with really strong fans, with people who will jump in and defend you. You don't even have to defend yourself. But, but you have to get real. It has to stop being this, you know, we're going to broadcast this to you, and you're going to laugh at it, and you're going to think it's funny, and you're going to think it's great, as opposed to, hey, look, you know, let's, uh, let's talk. You know, it's interesting. Again, looking at their, at their Twitter feed for a second, I went back for like three days. Mm-hmm. They have just one ad per day. Mm-hmm. So all of the rest of the time yes. is just conversation back and forth, relationship building, which which is uh, you know obviously again not yeah. overdoing it, not with overdoing the advertisement. It. Building fandom, Dan, is the key here, and so it's interesting because the Wendy's Twitter account has now risen to the level of it's an honor to be roasted by the the Wendy's Twitter account. So people are literally <laughs> saying, "You say something bad about me," and they will respond. <laughs> you know, bad but funny. You like more of like an insult comic kind of a thing done right. in jest, and it just kind of creates a kind of good. Goodwill, a kind of funness that I think is consistent with the brand DNA. But again, you have to know that that's the intent of yes. it. Because if you don't, yes. then you're going to alienate customers Correct. as well. To, to Eric's point, I think that doing it the right way and making sure that you are staying within a bounds of acceptability and legitimacy where the brand uh, sort of creates the scope of what you can say and not say in that conversational domain is quite key. Are, are we, Eric, are we even reaching a point where that type of approach is more accepted now than maybe even it was two, three years ago. Yeah, I think so. I I think it's not only more acceptable, but I think it's more expected, and it'll soon be more demanded, more demanded. Um, uh, I I, I think we're on for sort of better days than the old sort of Mad Men days, although, you know, I'd like to have been as cool as they were, but... um, You are, Eric. We know you are. (laughs) We we know that. You're very cool. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Slavo himself. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I, I... 
I, I think it's, it's going to be, as people like Wendy's do it right, the other people are either going to do it right or they're going to look like, you know, you see these guys of a certain age and they're trying to dress cool and they're, you know, they're giving people high fives and, you know, fist bumps and it's like, you know, give it up. Come on, you know, get, you know, be something, be genuine. We're going to demand. We're going to demand that, uh, and uh, you know the folks that can't bear being genuine, can't bear being vulnerable once in a while, are going to become irrelevant. And boy, that's the last thing you want to do if you're a marketer is be irrelevant. So even if you are being genuine. Uh, that is the most important uh, component here in this ever-changing world. And, and I say that because technology changes. The, the, the way to reach people, it stays the same for a, a period of time, but then it changes. It, it makes ad execs and, and companies have to be able to stay on point all the time with all of the changes that are going on. That's 100% correct. I mean, as as a CMO these days, you have to be basically – you know, well-versed in all of these communication skills in terms of across all your platforms, making sure that what you're saying and doing is consistent with the values of the brand uh, that people believe in their heads in that psychological space that, that you ask them to hold, as Eric was saying. And so now the job in coordinating all of this across yeah. multiple channels is a, is a massive undertaking. So then what do you think should be the expectation of the consumer in general where all of this, this brand adjustment is going on right now? Well, I think that uh, consumers are going to say uh, they, their uh, role in all this has changed greatly. They see themselves now as co-creators of the brand, not just active listeners that are told something and that something is either believed or not. Now they are part of creating what that brand stands for in terms of how they reinforce those sorts of things over social media, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think they expect to be kind of like in the C-suite with you and sort of giving you feedback, reinforcing what you're doing, helping you understand where you should, quote, course correct and where yeah. you should uh, keep doing things well. And it's just going to be kind of a collaboration more of than kind of a in-consumer sort of relationship. Eric, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, if I were if I were the CMO at a, at a place, I I would be looking to have people be co-creators and co-owners of the brand, um, because a co-owner of the brand will defend the brand for you. A co-owner of the brand will set you straight early on because they they want the brand to succeed. Uh, and, and that's what you want. You know, and if you contrast it to the Mad Men days where, you know, folks ran focus groups and they brought people in for an afternoon and talked to them and debated about stuff and they thought they understood the, the customers. Well, they understood the customers a lot better than they had used to understand the customers when they just did surveys. But, but now we have like this endless 24-7 focus group, and it's even better because we don't control it with our notebook full of agenda and questions. Uh, so they get the people to co-create things with us and to co-own it with us. That's wonderful. That's how you create something that's really powerful and really enduring. Great having you both with us. Thank you, Eric, for joining us on the phone. My pleasure. As always. Thank you. Maricus, as always. Thank you, sir. Great having you in the studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.